From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Cookbooks are just a way for someone to tell their story in a way that's easily digestible for the masses. You can like talk about complex identity issues, you can talk about flavors that you're drawn to because of how you grew up or your family, and they're like just deeply personal. Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you right now. It's also a perfect time to buy Black-authored cookbooks. You can find a list of some of our favorites on our bookshop page, bookshop.org backslash shop backslash salt and spine. And you just heard from today's guest, Jesse Shefjek. Now, Jesse is a New York-based food writer and stylist with bylines and outlets from Food 52, The Kitchen, Tasty, and Jari. Jesse joined us to talk about his first cookbook, Tasty Pride, a compilation of 75 recipes and stories from the queer food community. Of course, June is Pride Month, and we were thrilled to welcome Jesse to the show. In addition to bringing together queer voices for this cookbook, Jesse's publishers at Clarkson Potter and Tasty also made a $50,000 donation to GLAAD on the book's publication day. We're talking today with Jesse about growing up in the Midwest, what it was like to work in restaurant kitchens and food media as a young gay man, and the process of putting together this cookbook. Now, Jesse dedicates the book to, quote, all the queer cooks who have longed to see themselves represented in mainstream food media. He writes, we are in every restaurant, test kitchen, hotel, catering company, studio, and publication. This book and the stories within it prove that there is a seat at the table for all of us. Now, in addition to Jesse, we're joined today by some other contributors to Tasty Pride, including food writers John Birdsall, Aaron Hutcherson, and Eric Kim. And we're hearing from some of our past conversations with queer authors like Lazarus Lynch and Julia Tertian. Of course, we're also featuring recipes from Tasty Pride. You can find Vaughn Diaz's Puerto Rican-style pimento cheese and a dry-rubbed barbecue chicken from Ben Mims, both on our website. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Jesse Shefjack joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Jesse. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. Yes, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, and we're here to talk about your cookbook, Tasty Pride. Congratulations. It's thank beautiful. Thank you. Um, and I want to get to the book itself in a second, but we always like to start by talking a little bit about you and sort of your food story and your food career story. So I think you grew up outside of Chicago. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I only just moved like full time to New York City, maybe like three and a half years ago. Okay. Yeah. So most of your life sort of spent in the Midwest. And I, I think I read too that your mom for some period of your childhood had a candy business. Is that right? That she was running from the home and you were sort of involved in that to some extent. Can you sort of tell us about the role that food played in your life growing up and how you sort of became interested in cooking? Yeah, of course. So when I was younger, like when my sister and I were children, my mom, like to be able to support us, she stopped working and she started a candy business from her home. She got like a business license. She got her kitchen like approved for production and she would make, sure mostly caramel. She got like really well known for caramels. So I would just grow up and help my mom making caramels. And like, I didn't really think much of it at the time. And then I think as I got to like 
high school, I'm like, oh, wait, I really like this. And I started working in kitchens and it just like one thing led to another. Yeah. Were these soft caramels, hard caramels? So they're like soft and chewy caramels. They're like super buttery and uh-huh. yeah, they're really good. Amazing. Um, and so by high school, you're sort of pretty focused on cooking, right? You started, as you said, working in restaurants. Did you sort of realize at that point that food in some capacity was likely a career for you? Yeah, I think so. I think I always just kind of like fantasized about this like traditional chef role. Like I just always wanted to be like a chef, whatever that meant. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And it wasn't probably until like recent years that I kind of was like, oh, wait, that's not actually my dream. So I always knew I wanted to be in food. I just didn't know like where I fit. Sure. And what types of restaurants were you working in like to start in high school? Or just like chain restaurants? Like what sort of roles did you have? Yeah, my first job, I was like 15. And I worked as a busboy at a pizza place. I desperately wanted okay. to make pizza. And I couldn't because I was 15. But then the sushi place opened next door and I interviewed them and I just begged them, please let me work in the kitchen. And so I worked as a prep cook at a sushi place. That was like my first job. And I worked there, I don't know, maybe about a year. And then I, maybe like junior year, I went over to basically a pub and I was working like a fryer station and like making salads and grilled cheese. And those are my two jobs during high school. And then like my final year, I had like split days senior year. So I would go half the time to regular high school classes. And then half the time for a part of my senior year, I went to community college for cooking. So you were pretty focused. I also read you competed to be one of the top high school chefs in the country. Is that right? Like oh your junior God. year? Okay, that's like a totally inflated title. But it was like this Johnson <laughs> Wales competition. They like flew these high school students out to Miami and like made them compete against each other like reality show style. But anyways, I didn't win. But it was Cool. So you're like 16, 17, fly into some like national co- cooking competition. What did you make? Oh, God, it was so stupid. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> I made like these gnocchi made with like chestnut flour and like this veal like roll up type thing. And I, I feel like it wasn't even good. It was just like me trying to cram all these things that I thought were like fancy into one dish. Sure. Right. Yeah. Makes sense in the early days of experimenting that you would want to try all of those techniques and things, flavors. You write in the book that at the time that you were sort of working in restaurants in high school, you hadn't come out. Um, mm-hmm. And do you say that you sort of assumed at the time that your culinary aspirations didn't align with your sexuality? Can you talk to us a little bit about how that felt um, to be in those kitchens at that time and sort of also be coming to terms with your sexuality? Kitchens always were kind of this place with this like sports like energy, the sports like mentality. And, you know, all the kitchens I worked in, I never really saw anyone like myself or like someone who looked or acted like me. Because other times I was still coming to terms with like who I was. And so I always kind of felt like maybe they don't exist in kitchens. Um, so I would either have to just kind of hide that part of me or just like deal with the fact that I won't be able to work with people who I will connect with on that level. And even at that time within like media itself, I don't feel like I was exposed to a ton of queer people in the culinary world, except maybe like Elizabeth Faulkner. I had her baking book, which I thought was incredible. It had like these anime drawings. I'm like, wow, this speaks to me. I don't know why. So yeah, I think I was just kind of like wishing that I had a community that I like had not found yet. And did that change your attitudes towards wanting to go into the food industry at all? Or did you just sort of feel that that might be a challenge for you personally? I'm not sure because so my first year in culinary school and when I got there, I'm like, oh, I think I want to study culinary maybe because I will end up working in like an R&D capacity or something. 
like mm-hmm. that. So I think maybe subconsciously, I always thought restaurant kitchens aren't where I'm going to end up. I'm not sure why. So maybe I always did have that feeling. And I just like didn't necessarily put the pieces together until I kind of was able to analyze why I was feeling that way. And when did you sort of realize that maybe food media was the right place for you? So after college, I went kind of from job to job in kitchens in like different capacities. I worked like an R&D job and I worked like a traditional kitchen job and I was just like never quite fulfilled. And so I was 25 at the time living in Chicago and I saw an ad for an internship at BuzzFeed in New York. So I got it and I quit my job. I was a culinary director at that time. I moved to New York. I took the internship and so I got hired on within like three months And I think after I kind of got comfortable with my voice and my writing, I realized that media could be something I find really fulfilling because I'm able to produce content that I wish I had seen prior to me, like getting into media. Yeah. How did the concept for this cookbook come about? So the book um, is obviously a compilation, a collaborative work of recipes and stories from 75 queer authors, queer people in the food community. How did the idea for this come together? And can you talk to us a little bit about the process of building this book? So my first year at BuzzFeed, I did a handful of Q&As and posts kind of with members of the queer food community. They just made me feel incredibly fulfilled. And I got such great feedback. And I started to realize that like the audience, the BuzzFeed audience is probably wanting to see more stuff like this, because maybe they're not, you know, exposed to the same kind of media that I'm consuming as like someone in New York within the queer community. After the first year, I approached my editor, I'm like, listen, I have this pipe dream, it's like ridiculous. And I explained this concept for the book. And her name was Melissa. And Melissa like took it straight to the top. And she's like, I'm gonna pitch this. So she pitched it. And internally, BuzzFeed, we were all aligned, we liked this concept. But the process from kind of like, just like, oh, this is a good idea to like a contract to figuring out how to do this was really long, maybe a year, because we had never done anything like that as a company. And there's so many pieces that went into it that I'm like, I want this in the contract. I want this fleshed out before we get anywhere near production. Because if every detail isn't set up from the beginning, this is not going to be responsible. Everything needs to be set. We need to figure out how to pay everybody in the book. We need to figure out how to have a donation portion that's meaningful. There's all these things. So it took about a year. And then after a year, we finally settled on all these details that I'm like, okay, I feel good about this. We are completely buttoned up. This is going to actually make a financial contribution that's significant. It's going to reinvest the community and it's going to do the job I originally wanted to do, which was to tell these stories and to highlight these people's work. So that whole process was maybe one of the most challenging things. But the fact that we put the time in and like the resources before we get started, I think is the reason why it turned out the way it did. Yeah, yeah, totally. And how important was that sort of like financial contribution or that like giving back component of the book? Yeah, I mean, I think if there was no reinvestment in the community, there would be no reason to produce the book, there'd be nothing to be proud of. So on top of a donation portion, Everyone who touched the book need to be paid. I don't want a contribution book where everyone donates a recipe. I don't know what that means. That is not what this is about. Like, I want to pay my community. I want to hire them. I want to give them work. And I think that was one of the most important parts of the project in in terms of putting it together. Yeah. And you wanted to include stories from all of the, the authors or all of the contributors, right? Was that clear from the beginning that it was more than just recipes? And how did you sort of land on how to incorporate these sort of snippets, I guess we might call them, of um, each of these authors sort of relationship to food and their identities? 
so yes, from the beginning, I always wanted there to be room for people to tell stories because I think queer food is interesting in the sense that, you know, if we look at other types of food, say like Italian food, there's these clear histories and origins that, you know, we can point back to, but with queer food, it's just any food made by a queer person. So then narrative is much more complicated. And I wanted space for everyone to explain that and to tell a story. So the book kind of had a thesis. And ultimately, I wanted these stories to just spread hope. So, you know, if someone is reading this book, they will see themselves reflected in the stories because it's hard to see yourself reflected just in a recipe. Sure, you can see those flavors you're familiar with, but I wanted people to read stories that resonated with them, that would bring them hope, that would bring them joy. And I thought that was, we needed that context in order to put these recipes together. Yeah, I wouldn't want to ask you, of course, to pick favorites in the book, but I'm wondering if there are recipes or stories from some of these uh, contributors that resonated with you in particular. Yeah, so that's a really hard question because I feel like it's like picking a favorite child. But I know. So, so that's the, why we won't call them favorites. We'll just share some that resonated. How about okay, that? Perfect. So my go-to answer is that when I first sent out the ask to all these contributors, the first one I got back was from Brian Hart Hoffman, who uh-huh. is he's the editor-in-chief of Bake From Scratch magazine. At that time, my prompt was pretty vague because I didn't really want to, you know, point people in too much of one direction because that's the point is not to do that. And so he sent me back this recipe for what he's calling like wedding cake cookies, which is maybe one of the more literal references in the book. But the headnote described the story of him growing up in the South and how like wedding culture was really important. And he loved going to weddings and he loved just everything about them, the food celebration. But as he grew older, he kind of felt resentful and no longer, you know, found any joy in them because he would never be able to have one himself. What's the point? And the story kind of comes around, obviously legislation changed and he ended up, he went to, I want to say Seattle and he married his husband in his mother's backyard because this was three years prior to legislation change when all states had marriage equality. And basically these cookies are that story with sprinkles in them because he's saying that celebration is never too far from reach. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, if this is the stories I'm going to get back from the other 74 people I've asked, like, wow, this book could actually be important. And I, it was just like a really great recipe to get back as the first person to respond. That, that's a great story. And the stories are so varied. I mean, we see people talking about things that might connect to their childhood or like the early years of their life. We see lots of people talking about relationships that they've had or that they're in and just sort of a range of stories. What was the prompt that you gave people? The prompt was basically just like, is there a food that like relates to your identity? And can you tell that story essentially? So I kept it incredibly broad. Did you learn anything about yourself or about how you think about sort of the intersection of food and identity more broadly while you were putting this book together? Yeah, I I feel like I learned so much. I think one of the biggest things I learned specific to like queer food or what we call queer food is that the diversity of cuisines and voices and styles within the queer food community is just so incredibly vast. And it's important when we talk about queer food to make sure that the recipes and the people and the stories look like kitchens. They're representative of what all kitchens look like because, you know, we are in every kitchen. And 
I'm happy that the book is, you know, what people call eclectic because it needs to be. So I think I learned just the most about that, just like what the queer food community looks like. And it's just such an exciting group of people. Yeah. And obviously there's been real progress in terms of rights for queer folks. And when we were talking about, you were just talking about marriage equality is one example, but certainly that's, you know, there's work to be done, right? There's still progress to be made and, and moving towards true equality. Can you sort of talk about some of the maybe challenges um, or uh, issues that you saw coming up when you were like that we're still facing today as an industry when you were talking with all of these queer authors from across the country? Yeah, I mean, there's several stories about adversity people have had to face working in kitchens. Christopher's yeah. story was that he was he's like never felt comfortable and how he remembers going into this fine dining restaurant and how someone said to him, I don't know the exact quote, they're like, oh, you're like the first black person who's walked in these doors or who was staged in this kitchen. And things like that, it's, you realize that, you know, maybe like from my point of view, because I'm so privileged, like, wow, we have made so much progress. I feel comfortable in working in kitchens, but it's like not actually the case. That's probably not the norm. So there's just still so much work to be done for, you know, people to feel completely comfortable and to be welcomed in like every type of kitchen. Fine dining kitchen should have everyone they should they should be representative of the population and they're they're not yeah and legal protections too which do not exist in in all states either yes of course and like people just feeling comfortable that they can ask for legal protections and not lose their job yeah right we'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with jesse shefjek author of tasty pride To celebrate Pride Month, we called up a few contributors to Jesse's book to talk about how they think of the connection between food and queer identity. First up, we called John Birdsall, the Oakland-based food writer who co-authored the Hawker Fair Cookbook with our previous guest, James Seabutt. Now, John tells us he started working in kitchens in 1984 in the Bay Area and describes the atmosphere as less than welcoming. At that time, you know, there were a lot of queer people in restaurants, which was my main knowledge of food, but everyone was really kind of afraid to be too out and too open. And, you know, I was cooking in San Francisco, so of all places, for there to be some measure of fear about being outed in a in a in an environment that was very difficult for LGBTQ people to um navigate. And so there was a lot of um you know, basically fear and a lot of uh, reluctance, uh, a lot of feeling unsafe uh, about being queer in the kitchen. John has won two James Beard Awards for his reporting and writing on queer food, the first in 2014 for his piece in Lucky Magazine titled America, Your Food is So Gay. Since I wrote that Lucky Peach piece, America, Your Food is So Gay, in late 2013, I've seen things change incredibly you know, there's there's much more open queer representation in professional kitchens. And I think more than that, just a conversation about queerness in kitchens, what it means to express oneself as a as a as a queer cook in professional kitchens. Now that Lucky Peach piece explores how three male cookbook authors, James Beard, Richard Olney, and Craig Claiborne, really shaped and defined the modern American food world. I had been really interested in the ways in which sort of closeted queer sexuality, yes, absolutely informed American food in the mid-20th century at a time when it was especially perilous to be out. 
And so I was really interested in the ways in which something that I recognized as queer food had to be hidden and the ways that it, that it, that it sort of seeped out unacknowledged. It had to be closeted in a way, but it absolutely informed the nature uh, of American food in the mid 20th century. John has written a full biography on James Beard titled The Man Who Ate Too Much, which is coming this fall. There's another notable work, though, that he points to, the Alice B. Tolkis cookbook, which she published in 1954 after the death of her partner, Gertrude Stein. American cookbook publishing at the time and up till then really had been more interested in you know, presenting large compendiums of recipes, something like Fanny Farmer or Joy of Cooking, and really didn't want you know, individual expressive voices. And the fact that, you know, Alice B. Toklas wrote this book in 1954, not only was completely expressive of this, you know, unique life, but was unacknowledged, but undeniably, you know, a queer woman <laughs> in a queer, you know, marriage, essentially, with Gertrude Stein. These works, John notes, set the stage for cookbooks to be more narrative and for the industry to publish more diverse voices. Nowadays, we, we expect cookbooks to be expressive, to be sort of narrative documents, even if they're not overtly narrative, you know, even if they're not memoristic or autobiographical, we really look to recipe headnotes and the stories that cookbooks contain to really tell us something about, about the author. And since queerness has become more fearless in American cultural life in general, and in American food in particular, you know, cookbooks are these kind of what can be wonderful kind of narrative documents of queerness, of the way that queer culture uses food in unique ways, as well as the ways in which uh, a queer understanding of food has really informed American food in general. One of the things that really strikes me is, is the way that, you know, there's a, this kind of unbroken line as I see it from the sort of almost subversive kind of closeted queer voices in cookbooks and in food media in the 20th century to the, to the sort of out and open voices now. One such voice is food writer Eric Kim. He's a senior editor at Food 52, where he also authors the Table for One column. Eric was born to Korean immigrants in Atlanta, where he grew up, and he says that knowing some of the most well-known names in cookbook publishing from earlier decades were queer is quite meaningful and has actually helped him see the connection between food and his sexuality. I'm excited to hear what John Birdsell said, because he's someone who taught me that there was an intersection at all. And he continues to do so. Like that first essay, America, Your Food is So Gay, teaches us about Richard Olney and James Beard. And, and he creates this genealogy, right? And every time I, I go to the Beard house for a dinner, I'm always reminded that this is awesome. This man, this very important man, after whom all these awards are, this award is named after, the biggest award in our industry. He was gay. And so there's a politics to that. Eric's recipe in Tasty Pride is for roasted seaweed risotto with peas, which he calls a, quote, encapsulation of his childhood. The dish evokes juke, a Korean rice porridge, and is Eric's Asian take on Italian risotto. It's also reminiscent of another dish centered in one of Eric's Food 52 columns, titled, When I Came Out to My Parents, Kimchi Fried Rice Held Us Together. What people like Jesse have taught me is that there is a way to connect food and, and, and queerness. And it's a political act, and you have to do it intentionally, and specifically trying to talk about narratives that aren't just white gays. Eric is currently working on his first cookbook with Clarkson Potter. 
that's like the gold standard, right? Getting the cookbook deal. And that's, that's important because then you're, you're in print and you're, you're on the page forever. And it's these publishing houses that are, that wield so much power to determine which voices are important and which voices get to tell their stories. Of course, what we're learning now, especially these last couple of weeks, the, with the protests is that there's something potentially problematic about these institutions because they are predominantly led by white people. And so what does it mean that the people who are canonizing a certain field are mostly mostly white? That's why Eric says cookbooks like Tasty Pride and others that celebrate queer voices are so important. When we're able to talk about our sexuality, it's a very it's a very political act and I think some people wish it weren't, but I think there's something really beautiful about about that power and being really deliberate about it and it's almost like if you're a queer food writer, it's hard to kind of step away from that responsibility. I think the beautiful thing about publishing now and as these cookbook houses are starting to take notice to these other narratives, these non-white narratives, these non-cis narratives, like I think it's going to help younger generations kind of be more vocal about what is possible in, in an industry as limited as the food industry. Another contributor to Tasty Pride, Aaron Hutcherson, the personality behind the popular food blog, The Hungry Hutch, shared a similar analysis of the cookbook industry's ongoing evolution, sometimes an overdue one, to better include diverse authors. Cookbooks are just another area of media that is created to sort of reflect and put a mirror up to society. And so much of it to this point has been this very, like, straight heteronormative white middle class sort of image of what life in America is like. And so now, especially like with this tasty pride cookbook, I think it will help for a lot of queer people throughout the country to sort of see themselves reflected in the pages and stories of a cookbook, which isn't really something that I don't think many have seen before. Like others, Aaron wasn't sure how out to be as a young queer person working in food. But over time, that view has changed, and he's optimistic that future generations can see themselves more easily in food media today. When it comes to my work with food, I don't explicitly sort of link it to my sexuality, but I try to bring all of myself to my work, regardless. So it's me being a guy from Chicago. It's me being black. It's me being gay. So yeah, it's not an explicit thing that I think about often, but um, just who I am shows up in my work sort of regardless. When I first got into food, I was cautious about revealing my sexuality just because I was 23. 24 um so still young and just still very much afraid of what might happen if i were to come out in the workplace but as more people do it and as younger food people out there sort of read this book and hear our stories i hope it sort of gives them more comfort in who they are as a cook and a queer person in the food world Now, that's a sentiment that was shared by previous Salt and Spine guest Lazarus Lynch when he joined us in our studio. Lazarus told us last fall that he was surprised when food writer Elazar Sontag 
pointed out just how powerfully and visually queer Lazarus's cookbook, Son of a Southern Chef, is. You know, I never thought about that. Yeah. I said, is it really that queer? <laughs> but, you know, and I think, yeah, I think it's just me being who I am through every page. Um, it was not intentional at all. Yeah. You know, I wish I could say we, we thought about it and it was all strategic, but no. And Lazarus says it's been meaningful to see what his cookbook has meant to so many other people. You know, one of the, the great things about that, though, is that it has opened so many doors for conversations within the Black community about identity. Yeah. And really shifted the narrative, I think, not just in my family, but also in Black culture about what what sexuality is and the spectrum of that and the beauty of that and how that inspires people to live away or live that way or choose this way or portray themselves as that way. And I, you know, all of those underlying conversations that are not about food, but that can be related to food sort of have come up because of, because of that, because of the book. Yeah. So that's really incredible and exciting. On a closing note, these conversations reminded me of our 2018 interview with Julia Tertian. When Julia joined us in our studio then, we talked about representation broadly in the cookbook industry, including that of queer voices like hers. I have navigated my career, yes, as a very openly queer woman, but very much as a white person in a very white industry. And it definitely uh, took me a bit to kind of, I would say, move away from my sort of, you know, just kind of, I guess, laser focus on my own work to then having a bit more of a peripheral vision and looking around and seeing who else was there and just really seeing who wasn't there Um, and knowing how, how, you know, how hard I've worked to, you know, just, you know, gain a seat at the table and then realize how many people are not sitting at the table and also looking very much at who's doing the inviting. And part of the reason I thought we should briefly revisit our previous conversation with Julia Tertian is for the following bit of advice, which though we recorded this conversation coming up on now two years ago, feels just as timely and prescient as ever. People who purchase cookbooks have tremendous, tremendous power. And I think in this day and age, not only the, you know, I think it basically like everything I think comes down to the numbers and what books are purchased, but it also comes down to kind of the, the conversation around the books. So, you know, not only is it great to buy cookbooks written by authors of color to support a more diverse and inclusive industry, it's equally important. This might sound silly, but to follow them on social media and yeah. engage and, you know, show publishers and other people in positions of power that they have like loyal followings with an engaged audience, you know, show that there is demand for their work. I think when you see any type of injustice, so it could be sort of racial disparity in cookbooks, it could be anything, figuring out what it is we can do. And, you know, it's important to talk about, it's so important to talk about, but I think it's um, even more important to take action on. Julia offered a recipe from her cookbook, Small Victories, for turkey and ricotta meatballs, it's one that's in my personal rotation, to include in Tasty Pride. It's the first dish that she made for her wife, Grace, and she notes that, quote, sharing that story was intentional. Cookbooks have an amazing power to normalize anything that has been othered, she writes. And proclaiming my love for my wife via meatballs meant that anytime anyone prepared the recipe, it was almost as if our own little pride flag went along with it. Well, I don't care what the neighbors say, I'm gonna spend my life with you. If the things you do get kind of strange, I'm gonna spend my life with you. Cause I like you best when you're that way, I'm gonna spend my life with you. 
And I don't care what you do I'm gonna spend my life with you Well, I don't care if you're singing tune I'm gonna spend my life with you If you drink your pay and you drink mine too I'm gonna spend my life with you Cause you make me laugh even when we lose I'm gonna spend my life with you I don't care what you do I'm gonna spend my life with you No, I don't care what you do I'm gonna spend my life with you You can find recipes from all of these authors, plus previous Salt and Spine guests Nick Sharma, Jessica Batalana, Pretty Mystery, and Yota Bodelegi in Tasty Pride. And now back to the second half of our conversation with Tasty Pride author Jesse Shefjek. You include a number of recipes from folks who have books of their own from um, cookbook authors, queer cookbook authors, some of whom we've had on our show, Jessica Batalana, Julia Tertian's Meatball Recipe, which is amazing. Also, Jessica Batalana's corn recipe is incredible. How do you sort of look at the cookbook industry, which I think has historically been a space that has been dominated by white voices, by white male voices, by like sort of straight cisgendered white men. I think that's changed over time. And maybe it's less so the case in the cookbook industry than it has been in some kitchen spaces. Um, But how do you sort of look at queer representation in the cookbook industry? Like, Where are we? What do we need to do there? I feel like representation within the cookbook industry is such a complicated question because, you know, first and foremost, you have to submit a proposal. Proposals take so much time. They take so much money for you to test these recipes to sometimes photograph them. So right there, there's a huge hurdle that excludes what 95% of people who probably want to write a cookbook. So that automatically is messed up. Cookbooks are not reflective of kitchens, not at all. They're not even, they're nowhere near reflective of kitchens. And when we talk about queer authors, making cookbooks it's so incredibly important because cookbooks have this incredible power to like normalize things that you know maybe have become i think julia said othered to outside people and so we need to see people like ourselves represented within cookbooks because it's just a way to start conversations you know if you are cooking someone else's food that's a great introduction to to understanding them when I think the general population thinks of recipe writing, they think that it yields four and they think that the head note talks about like a biological family with like a male and a female and just like these tiny things that seem, you know, maybe like mundane to us are like actually quite radical and they are actually making progress and in introducing to people to things that maybe they wouldn't even think about or are un- uncomfortable with. Right. So we're obviously showing cookbooks. We always like to talk about cookbooks sort of at large too. Did you grow up with cookbooks in your house? So my mom was a great cook. Uh-huh. And I remember she had this shelf. She worked at Williams Sonoma for a very short amount of time. She had like this whole giant Williams Sonoma collection of these skinny books. There must have been like 20 of them. And basically our whole life, we like lived off of these Williams Sonoma cookbooks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So those yeah. are sort of your earliest cookbook memories are those. Yeah. And then I do remember Elizabeth Faulkner's Demolition uh-huh. Desserts growing up. I think I was super into pastry when I was a kid. And I was like also really into anime. And this cookbook, it was like these anime style drawings of Elizabeth Faulkner, like in these recipes. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, this is what I want to accomplish in life. And I just, I would check it out from the library. I never actually purchased it just over and over again. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That was obviously a, a influential book for you. Are there other cookbooks or or cookbook authors who have been really influential to you in addition to that one? Yeah, uh, we're talking about Julie Torshin, and I think she's always my go-to answer because I don't think I ever saw anyone doing what Julia did until maybe I moved to New York. And she's, like we're saying, she's using cookbooks to bring up these kind of like radical concepts. And she's also using cookbooks as like a means to protest and a means to, you know, God, I'm like blanking on the word. (laughs) She's using cookbooks. I don't even know how to talk about her. She's just like so amazing. And essentially like I want to frame my whole entire career off of Julie Torshin. If I could accomplish like one tenth of what she has, I feel like I would be fulfilled in life. Yeah. 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 Like feeding the resistance, I feel like is just, it was an incredible idea And she even talks about how she's like, oh, I'm not the first person to do this. But the thing is, she's the first person to do it to reach kind of this mainstream scale. And that's just incredible. Yeah. And she did it so fast. So fast. Yes. Published it so quickly. Yeah. I remember when this came out, I was like super stressed and I was leaning on her to give me advice. And she said something like, oh, I wrote like Feeding the Resistance in X weeks. I'm like, okay, this makes me feel better. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you had to finish this sentence... How would you finish it? To me, cookbooks are... Cookbooks are just a way for someone to tell their story in a way that's easily digestible for the masses. Uh-huh. You can like talk about complex identity issues. You can talk about flavors that you're drawn to because of how you grew up or your family. And they're like just deeply personal. Yeah. What would your advice be to young people today in the food industry or who want to get into the food industry who might sort of feel like you did maybe when you were still in high school, like we were talking about feeling like maybe their sexuality isn't welcome in the food industry or that they sort of can't be both out and successful at the same time? I would say that there's just a huge, vast and incredibly supportive group within food queer food professionals and we are here to open you know open doors for you and to provide support and there's just countless incredibly successful queer chefs and queer cookbooks authors and caterers and stylists and photographers and that you know even if you're not exposed to them right now like we are out there and we are in every kitchen we are in every publication and there's no need to feel like you don't belong because you do belong and if anyone tells you otherwise they're simply threatened by your talent yeah Excellent. Well, on that note, we always end with a little game. So I thought since you are a recipe developer and a food stylist as well, we would sort of put you to the test a little bit. So we have four stacks of cards, proteins, which are sort of self-explanatory, vegetables, which are self-explanatory, flavors, which are like herbs and spices and things, and then secret ingredient, which is just a wild card in essence. And I'll draw one from each deck and that will be your little chopped basket. And then you can tell us what you might make. And if you have any like thoughts on how you might even style it visually or present it in an effective way, we welcome those too. Oh my God, I'm so nervous. <laughs> You'll be great. It's, it's totally no pressure. How does that sound? Okay, that sounds good. Okay, our first protein is duck. All right, all right. Take a vegetable. Vegetable is onion. Looks like a red onion, but I think it's open-ended. All right, all right. Flavor, we have cumin. Oh, man. 
And the secret ingredient, let's see what we get here. Oh, okay, is sumac. Oh, wow. So we have sumac, cumin, um, onion, and duck. What might we make with these? Man, I feel like I just realized I'd be really bad on chopped. I know, it's hard. Like, we always talk to our guests who are like, three hours later, I realized the perfect dish. No, literally, that's going to be me tonight. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to use a duck breast. Okay. And I am going to crust it in like, kind of like crushed spices, like not ground, like kind of chunky. So that'll sure. have like cumin and the sumac, probably like black pepper and maybe like throw some sugar on there. And wow. I will get that nice and seared and crispy. I think the onion, it'd be nice to make like a, like a gastric-y, like a jammy thing. Okay, so I'm going to put that, the style, I'm going to put that on the plate. Okay, it's a gastric, not jam. I changed my mind. Okay. And then we're going to put like the duck fanned over it. And then on top, I think it would be nice to have like a very bright herby salad. Maybe it's just like kind of tossed in like lemon salt and like some oil. Okay, sure. That's it. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> I don't know about that. Let's do one more. So protein. Okay, we have goat. Oh, man. Okay, sweet potatoes. All right, all right. Goat and sweet potatoes. Flavor we have is basil. Hmm. Secret ingredient. Oh, okay. Is peppermint. Oh, God. Okay. I feel like I have to throw the basil and the mint together to make, like, once again, an herb salad. I'm like a one-trick pony here. Because, like, what else I could do with this? <laughs> oh, peppermint oh, candy. This is, like, peppermint candy. Yeah. They're little, like, candy canes. Oh, God. I oh, Man, I thought this was an herb. <laughs> I, I know. Herb was hard. Okay. Good clarification. <laughs> I feel like I have to just like pull some typical chopped shit and like throw the peppermint in a pan, like turn it into a sauce or something. Sure. Okay. The goat? So you, like condense the peppermint into like a syrup? Like, can I crust the goat in like peppermint or something? Okay. I'm going to braise the goat with like sweet potatoes in like, in, like a coconut milk. So okay. it's like kind of sweet. And like with some like spices in there. And then on top, once again, I'm just going to do like a herb salad, like basil and like cilantro on top, maybe some like coconut flakes and stuff. The sure. peppermint. Okay, this is just going to be like a total add-on where they like yell at people on chop for that. <laughs> I'm going to, what if I like crush it up and then I toss like the sticky little crushed pieces in like a spice mix? Because I feel like since they're like, I saw Ben Mims combine peppermint and lime. So what if I like toss them in like lime zest and like salt? I feel like that might be good. And like use that as like a little garnish. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know what I just made. I think, (laughs) I think that could work. (laughs) I feel like I just like really rambled there. (laughs) I have faith. If not, like you go back to your Midwestern roots and you just like put the peppermint in a little plastic wrapper with the check at the end of the meal, right? Oh yeah, that's the best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for playing our game. This was so much fun. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine, Jesse. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Tasty Pride for Von Diaz's Puerto Rican-style pimento cheese and the dry rub barbecue chicken from Ben Mims. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. 
The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brush for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bottomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sapp at Omnivore Books. A special thanks this week to John Birdsall, Aaron Hutcherson, and Eric Kim for phoning in. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.